Welcome to the Big Unlock Podcast, your leading source for insights and best practices on the digital transformation of healthcare. Join host Patty Patmanaban, CEO of Demo Consulting and best-selling author of Healthcare Digital Transformation, how consumerism, technology, and pandemic are accelerating the future in conversation with healthcare and technology leaders. This podcast is brought to you with the support of our partners, Innovacer and Powbox. Hello again, everyone, and uh, welcome back. Uh, this is Patty, and it is my great uh, privilege and honor to introduce my special guest today, Matthew Roman, Chief Digital Officer at Duke Health. Matt, what a pleasure to have you on our show, and welcome. Hey, good afternoon, Patty. Uh, thank you very much. It's really a pleasure to uh, talk to you again. Thank you. You're most welcome. So why don't we get started with uh, maybe a little bit of an overview of Duke Health, uh, the populations that you serve, and your role in the uh, organization. Yeah, thank you. I have the pleasure of serving as the Chief Digital Strategy Officer for Duke University Health System. It is um, a medium-sized but uh, very uh, high-quality academic medical center. We're pretty proud of the quality of care we offer here. Uh, We have three hospitals in our system. We're located in the center of North Carolina, so we have um, a flagship academic hospital and two community hospitals, and then a, a large series of um, clinics, both primary care and uh, a large specialty faculty practice as well. I report in to the chief information officer, and we uh, support the academic mission through the schools of medicine and nursing, as well as the health system functions. So the mission includes the education side of it, the research side of it, and also the healthcare delivery organization, which is kind of typical for any AMC. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so in your role as Chief Digital Strategy Officer, maybe you could give us a little bit of an overview of the digital programs that are currently in flight at uh, Duke Health. Maybe touch upon one or two things, telehealth, for instance, which uh, has been a big growth area for most organizations. So maybe you could give us an overview, Matt. Sure, sure. Our Digital Strategy Office was formed uh, about three and a half years ago. It's the vision of our uh, chief information officer, who's a physician himself. And so uh, we are responsible for uh, sort of um, consumer-friendly, patient-facing technologies to help with our patients' uh, attempts to engage with us as a health system. We're taking a, an approach where we're, we're in the, in the deep in the throes of implementing a number of what I would call foundational technology platforms on which over the next uh, couple of years, we'll build uh, hopefully more and more and more more effective and broader reaching use cases. So these platforms include uh, some of which are fully embedded already, some of which are in flight. As you mentioned, Patty, our telehealth platform, which everybody in the country has to have now. We're responsible for our patient portal and are doing some things around the patient portal to improve our, our experience of the patients a CRM strategy, a strategy around conversational AI and chatbot, a strategy where we reach out to the patients to learn from them what they want from us. Uh, We're doing this through a virtualized patient advisory council. Some others have done this as well too. And remote patient monitoring, both in support of the telehealth platform, the visits of today that are conducted virtually, but also in support of um, continuing care, even if that care is delivered in person. We're able to then, through these remote patient monitoring strategies, 
capture data points and much greater frequency uh, to support clinical decision making and predictive modeling and such. Yeah, those are clearly the, the top foundational platforms for a lot of health systems. And we'll, you know, we'll unpack all of that. Uh, let's start with telehealth. What have been the volumes? And I know everyone had a spike during the mm. pandemic, but that's also dropping off a little bit and maybe reaching some level of equilibrium. And obviously the questions are on how patients are responding to it. And of course, how caregivers are responding to it as well. Uh, from the point of view of training, you know, workflows and so on. Talk to us a little bit about what that experience has been like and uh, feel free to, you know, talk about any platforms that you've used to, to execute on it and your whole strategy. Are you using one? Are you using multiple platforms for different things? How do they all fit with your other tools that you talked about, uh, especially the EHR platform, but also other tools that are involved in delivering the seamless experience for patients? Yeah, sure. So we had an experience like most others. Uh, we had a pretty small telehealth footprint. We had some early adopters pre-pandemic. Some really impressive work, though, pre-pandemic. Um, for instance, our movement disorder clinic had a, has a neurologist that um, was a very early adopter of, um, of telehealth. His patients are ALS patients who have tremendous movement and mobility disorders, and it's, it takes an army to bring them to our clinic. And, and he, has a, he has a pretty wide... Um, capture rate or capture geography. And so he was able to, uh, we were able to work with him to enable video visits of these patients. It was a tremendous satisfier. Very white glove, uh, very high touch at the time on our side. Uh, of course, we had the same hockey stick uh, increase in volume as everybody else did in March of last year. We went from, no kidding now, no, uh, we went from 100 visits a month to 2,000 visits a day, much like everybody else. We, like uh, I've seen in, from colleagues around the country in the last couple of months, have seen uh, these numbers uh, tail. The truth is our highest month volume since the start of the pandemic was March of 2021. And then we've, and since March, we've uh, started to tail off just a little bit. We continue to have pretty high volume in some specialties. Our behavioral health and psychiatry clinics have remained um, uh, very high adopters of high utilizers of our primary care clinics are, uh, are continuing to to be strong here. Certainly, some of the um, specialty and surgery clinics as well. Uh, we have a primary platform that's embedded in our in our electronic health record, and we have a backup platform too. So we are able to um, capture if, in fact, a patient doesn't have an app on their device or has some connectivity issues, then we can rescue or salvage that. Uh, by sending a, a rescue link. And so we have uh, two active platforms that we're working with currently. You also mentioned uh, chatbots. Uh, so have you been using them more in the context of clinical chats or more in, in an administrative context, let's say for enabling access and providing patients with information and self-service tools and what, or, or are you doing both? Yeah, it's a great question. We're uh, in the very relatively early stages of implementing our chatbot, and we're we're cutting our teeth on administrative functions. We will tread lightly in offering clinical advice through artificial intelligence, um, just more from a, a risk tolerance and quality assurance perspective than anything else, I think. But um, we're starting from an administrative place, to your point, uh, access, um, some instructions, directions, wayfinding touchless arrival, these sorts of things, and then we'll, uh, we'll branch from there. Is the approach to maybe start small, establish, 
uh, adoption levels and make sure that the chats work effectively and people feel comfortable with it before you start going to more complex and maybe more high stakes, high risk kind of uh, functions. Is that the approach? Well, that's right. And we're also working very hard with these, uh, you know, the secret sauce about mm -hmm. these platforms is not the platform themselves, but making certain that we know, for instance, if a patient has a remote monitoring device in their home, we're, we're monitoring their blood pressure via via home home checks, and then they engage with us via chatbot, that our chatbot response is informed by the fact that they actually are a remote monitored patient, and we can get smart to our answer. And we would answer that patient differently via artificial intelligence, knowing that they had a, an RPM device, than if we knew that that patient didn't. And so it's this connection between these platforms that's really so intriguing to me. Yeah, let's let's talk about uh, CRM. You mentioned that, and uh, you know, you and I have spoken before on this. Uh, where are you in your CRM journey? It's, this it seems to be when I look across the landscape, you know, people are in different stages of deploying enterprise-class CRM platform and really using that to transform their patient experiences. Uh, could you talk a little bit about where you are in the journey and what are some of your focus areas with the CRM sure. platform? We've implemented an enterprise-level CRM in our um, in our Duke Health marketing shop. So we do, that was our first stretch into the CRM and it was a number of years ago. And since then, we have an outfit here called the Duke Clinical Research Organization. It's a large CRO. So they have an installation of the same CRM tool that uh, helps them manage trials. This, they manage multi-center trials, not just uh, site-based research. And they do a bunch of work in, in, their, in the CRM, in that DCRI unit too. And now we're in the 11th hour of our um, implementation of the CRM tool in our access services center. And so we have an access services center that has multiple hubs that basically serves all of our primary and specialty care providers. Uh, they take uh, two to almost 3 million calls a year and schedule one to 2 million appointments a year out of that access center. And so you do that math real quickly, it's almost two calls per appointment. And so what we're hoping to do is be able to get a little bit smarter in our, in our engagement, knowing who the patients are, knowing who's calling, and knowing the call history, which right now we don't have much insight into, which we'll be able to with the CRM. And I can envision very, very easily patient acquisition efforts from the marketing effort, marketing shop within with the CRM tool and helping to create journeys from when we acquire a patient very first to when we actually schedule that patient for a desired or needed or requested services to then linking them to the portal and other things that we have downstream so that we can consistently engage with our patients, know about them, know about every encounter we've had with them clinically and administratively to reduce friction and lower the barrier for entry. Have you started seeing results from this implementation, especially in the, the contact center operations? Yeah, the honest truth is our contact center will, will go live in August. So um, we're, we're deep in the implementation phase. Um, so I, let's talk in a year and I'll hopefully have great stories for you. Well, all the best too with that. With that <laughs> I, know, I know how those things go. So I just want to touch on the last uh, foundational platform that you mentioned, which is uh, remote monitoring. And again, uh, you mentioned that in the context of uh, a chronic disease. And you know, that's where most of the deployments have been from an RPM standpoint. How has it worked so far, especially the, the aspects where you bring back the data from the devices and the sensors and so on, and, and you're trying to combine that uh, with uh, patient longitudinal records in the EHR, trying to make sense of it and trying to 
move the needle from the point of view managing their chronic conditions. How has that worked so far? Any learnings that you'd like to share with us? Yeah, we, we're taking an approach that um, RPM has uh, two really big buckets. This is almost oversimplified. The first bucket is to replicate what has happened for generations when we walk into our provider's office. We get weight and core temperature and, and height and blood pressure and heart rate and, and all these sorts of things. So we can replicate that when the visit occurs via video by remote capture just to continue to be able to capture the same sort of quality data that we have for generations. Perhaps more importantly, though, is um, when our providers are being asked to make clinical decisions based on a single data point or or a very precious few data points over a long longitudinal time point, then I feel like we're under-informed in these decisions. So the way we're structuring it is uh, we send patients home with uh, whatever the appropriate biometric kit might be, be it uh, blood pressure, glucose monitoring, or pulse oximeter, et cetera. Bring these data in to a repository or a lake short of our electronic health record where we can analyze the data. We can apply rules to uh, trigger alerts. These will be alerts to the provider team, to the care team, if there's a either a series of or a sequence of um, progressively out of range numbers or an alert or a range or a value that's particularly high or low that's uh, somewhat dangerous that would, we want to inter- intervene with or and uh, send alerts to patients. And these might be an alert to patient because we haven't received a value in a few days or because the values are trending well and we want to send them an, a nudge that says, congratulations, good job. The work you're doing is, is being effective and your blood pressure is becoming under control. You've lost five pounds, whatever. Or the reverse. If the trends are actually going in the wrong direction, we want to send an encouraging message to help them to get back on course, to help them in the provider titrate medicines, to help them in the provider change some course in one way or another. And then, of course, the long game is once we capture enough of these data points across a broad enough segment of our population that's representative enough, then we'll know, we'll be able to get smart about what normal recovery looks like after a procedure, about what normal or well looks like, about when a variant in the data is actually meaningful or when it's um, a predictable variant that's uh, innocuous. And so we'll, we're blessed to have really, really tremendous data science people around here to uh, be able to look at these big data sets and find the, the pearls in them. So we'll be able to work to set up predictive models to understand when data are indicating that action should really be taken. This also has, um, I think, a workflow utility because we can then even tell patients in advance when we're comfortable with this modeling. You can expect something like this to occur on, you know, somewhere between day four and six after you've gotten home. Like making up an example. Yeah. That's the journey we're on. This podcast is brought to you with the support of our partners, Innovacer and Powbox. This is obviously a great segue to my next question, which is going to be about data and analytics and how you're driving that. I imagine that RPM is just one of many use cases uh, for data and analytics. But can you talk to us about how you're set up specifically as it relates to data and analytics to serve the multiple needs of the enterprise? You have a centralized data and analytics function, and you mentioned predictive models, artificial intelligence. That's, again, a term that 
you know, everybody uses and, and success rates have varied widely depending upon the use case, depending upon the institution. Could you give us a little bit of state of the union or, you know, just share a little bit of what, what successes uh, you've had and how you're structured? Sure, sure. I'll speak to this as a consumer of these uh, really very brilliant people that I have the pleasure of working with. One of my peers is a chief analytics officer, and uh, so he and his team are responsible for for all the structure. Uh, I did mention the lake that's in place that, you know, I oversimplify it, and they would do a much better job of describing what we're doing there. But that lake, of course, is uh, able for us to, is built in such a way for us to be able to pile in multiple, multiple data streams. So in the very near-term future, we'll have an ability to inform our, our clinical decisions on things beyond just the very rich electronic health record data. There are tons of things in the electronic health record, but it's incomplete, of course. So in this um, lake will be or repository, we'll have RPM data, we'll have social determinant data. As data become more and more available on other social things, expense, spend, these sorts of things, we'll, we'll be able to put these data sets in there too. You would know as well or better than me that zip code is a, as powerful a predictor as medication list of certain outcomes clinically. And so we'll have these social drivers in there. Uh, I think we'll be able to put in geofencing and geolocation data as part of our remote monitoring journey. All of this, of course, with consent of patients. And if we, if we do this, if we do with these data as we should, then the patients become a great beneficiary of the work we're doing here. Yeah, I'd love to go into that in maybe in another podcast conversation. So there's so much there to unpack and so much there to uh, discuss emerging data sources and you know what's a better predictor versus something else and so on. But let me, let me come back to, uh, now you mentioned your role and it reports up into the CIO. I'm just curious, could you talk to us a little bit about the org model for driving mm-hmm. digital transformation? How's it structured? You know, can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. As I mentioned, I report into the CIO. I am not a deep technician. I'm not an engineer. I come at this from a clinical angle. I'm a clinician first and a, and a strategist and a di- digital health person second. I have a team that's relatively small. We're responsible for our portal, as I mentioned. We have uh, people with broad backgrounds. We have, uh, we have a nurse on our team. We have a physician who serves as our medical director. We have um, people trained specifically specifically in clinical informatics. We have a couple of other physical therapists. Um, so a, a broad and diverse team. We work very carefully and closely with operational colleagues in the health system, clinical and operational leads to understand the opportunities that our clinicians are experiencing, to find what I would like to call clever use of technology to ease their workflow to ease the ability to for them to engage with the patients, to empower the patients uh, with information and with tools to supplement their care in between clinical encounters. And so while I report in through and our budget is through our IT shop, we do nothing and would never try to do anything without our operational colleagues to actually be able to implement workflow, to be able to set appropriate impact metrics to be able to have baseline data against which to compare. I call them impact metrics because it's not just about numbers of adoption of this tool or that. It's about, you know, what difference did we make 
what does it matter that we have a million people on our portal account if, if in fact, you know, there's no impact of having a million people there except yeah. two commas in the number? And so we work extremely collaboratively on a daily basis with the clinical and ops leads uh, who are at the uh, tip of the spear. Let's talk about the tech. You're obviously deeply engaged with uh, the technology stack and the technology vendors who help you. How do you approach technology choices for your transformation? For instance, you've got your electronic health record, which does a lot of things, but you've also got an enterprise class CRM platform and, and maybe specialized tools for RPM and some of the other things that you talked about. And you have a choice. So you, you, know, you can go to the big tech firms. You could go at the other end to extremely small, nimble, and innovative startups and a whole range in between. How do you parse through those choices and how do you approach them, especially when it comes to the risks? That's a question that, candidly, I wrestle with every single day. I imagine. <laughs> <laughs> we have invested mightily in our uh, electronic health record, and that's mightily in dollars and, and effort. And I think we have a very mature installation of our in, er, enterprise electronic health record. However, it's a, it's a transactional system. It is the system of record. It houses our legal medical record, and it is responsible for the actual transactions. And that's important, and that's really critical, and we don't break that, right? We also work extremely hard because our clinicians of all stripes are very, very busy. And so we have a, we have a concept that I was taught by our prior CTO who calls it a, it's a classic term, you know, single pane of glass. And, um, and so we, we have a fairly high bar before we will ask our providers um, or our clinical staff or our administrative staff whose day is in the electronic health record. It's a fairly high bar for us to say, for this purpose, go to another application. And so when we want to bring in another application, we try very hard to allow us to be able to launch it from within the primary health record, the place where where uh, the, our staff are working all the time. We insist on single sign-on capabilities. We insist on being able to preserve contextual awareness. If I'm working with this patient in the health record and I launch application B, I should be able to find the same patient in application B without any effort to reduce errors and such. But it is, um, I would tell you that we, our pendulum swings all the time between inter- high-level enterprise solutions and fit for purpose. And um, it's an internal struggle. So all that to say is, I know I'm not answering your question clearly, but uh, it is the it is the, maybe the unanswerable one. Yeah. When it comes to uh, innovation and innovative technologies, now I know you have your own innovation group within the organization, within you. And then, of course, there's, there's a lot of innovation that is happening right now in the market. There's the billions and billions of venture capital money, for instance, going to innovative startups. Many of them have very interesting solutions, but sometimes it can be overwhelming to parse through all of that to find that little nugget. Or when you do find that nugget for reasons beyond your control or their control, they might fail for a variety of reasons. So let's say I have a startup founder who comes to me and says, look, I want to talk to Matt. I have this really, really interesting solution, which I think is going to make his life and his patient's lives easier. How do I approach Matt and what is he looking for? What is the answer you would give to someone like that? Yeah, with startups, um, I tend to say some of this advice is unwelcome to startups. One bit is for a complex organization like ours, the sales cycle is longer than you, the startup, or I would like it to be. But it's just the reality. We work very hard to shorten it, but... um, 
there's it's complex and I'm not saying it's right, but the reality is it takes a long time. So be patient is one. Two is um, I think that the point that we made a moment ago about respect the single pane of glass as much as possible is important. Even if that widget is uh, just simply remarkable and uh, game changing, if we can't get it in front of the users, and I mean the busy clinicians, I also mean the patients, then it won't matter, right? In other words, there is, I don't know what the number is, but there is, there is a tipping point where we can put too many applications on a patient's device, and then it becomes noise rather than signal. And then, you know, a patient who has comorbid conditions and we have three or four or whatever the number is, really magical applications that um, that could stand to change that patient's course. If we can't elegantly get that patient to interact with that application, then then it's somewhat meaningless. So patients, single pane of glass integration, which should be easier and easier as time passes because of fire standards and smart application capabilities and these sorts of things. And undersell and over deliver, right? And by that I mean is, yeah, it's somewhat obvious. It's um, you know, if it's a niche product, it's a niche product. But the other side of that continuum is the large company or the or the medium-sized company who comes into an organization like this one and says, "We can solve all your problems." That's somewhat of a an oversale. Yeah, I would be suspicious. Yeah, well, that's good advice. That is good advice. We're coming up to the end of our time here, and I have one last question. Uh, for you, Matt, based on your experience over the last few years that you've been in this role, and uh, you've clearly seen a lot of progress, and you've had your share of successes, and I'm sure you've had your share of things that didn't go as you planned it to be. What's your one or two pieces of uh, advice or best practices that you would like to share with your peers in the industry who are on similar transformation journeys? Thank you. One I love the question, and I would answer it by saying, be persistent, be tenacious, don't stop. I won't tell you that I have best practices because this is a personal semantic question for me. I don't like that term because it implies I already already have what's best and it can't get better. And so to me, the answer is tenacity, try something, carefully monitor the impact, make a change, try something again. That's, um, I happen to think that's the key. Don't be afraid to to try something new. Be obviously cautious and be obviously judicious in these changes because we're talking about patient safety. But um, where possible, the classic fail fast mentality to me is 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 wise. And then fail once fast. you failed, then you change and and learn and reapply. But don't necessarily move fast and break things. Is the Absolutely. is the subtext? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Matt, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you. And thank you so much for sharing all of those insights. Uh, once again, all the best with the upcoming Go Live. I know it's going to be a big one for you. And uh, I look forward to following all of the work and, and the progress that uh, you make. Once again, thank you for being on the show. Thank you, Penny. Thank you for all you do. Appreciate you. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. You can reach us at info at with your feedback and questions. This podcast is brought to you with the support of our partners, Innovacer and Powbox.